We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. King. Oh, go back a bit. So we're looking at 1 Kings 19 this morning. Um, that's our passage. Jamie did the previous talk. So if you rewind a little bit uh, to, to the last time we spoke on Kings, it was the story about Elijah. Um, very dramatic story. So we've got some pictures here just to recap. Um, this big showdown on Mount uh, Carmel. So all of Israel is, is going away from God. They're following after the, uh, Jezebel, the evil queen at the time, and, and the gods that she's got them to worship. Elijah's not happy about this. He's a prophet of the Lord. This sense of injustice and righteousness rises up, and he's like, no, this isn't good. He prophesies that there's going to be no rain in the land, and the rain dries up, and a, a drought comes. And then it, it, the big kind of climax of the chapter is this showdown on Mount Carmel, where he gets all the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the false god. And then he gets all the people of Israel, and he, he, there's two altars there on Mount Carmel. And he says to the prophets of Baal, call out to your god, and if he answers you with fire, then your God is real. And I'll call out to my God, and if he answers me with fire, then my God is real. And it's this big kind of ultimatum, this big showdown. And what happens? The prophets of Baal call out to their God, and nothing happens. There is no answer. Um, but Elijah calls out to God, and very dramatic fire comes down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice. He poured water on the altar, so this was even more miraculous, and, and uh, God is, is shown to be real. Um, then he, he does away with the prophets of Baal. He calls out to God and prays for rain on the land, that, that the rain would come, that the drought would end. And there's this cloud the size of a man's fist, and then sure enough, the deluge of rain comes, very dramatic. And then he runs. He runs ahead of Ahab, who's a king at the time, and, and beats him. Um, to, to where he's going. And was it 50 kilometers, Jamie, the distance he ran? Um, it, was a long, it was a long distance that he's running, and here's a picture of Elijah running. Pretty dramatic stuff, pretty exciting stuff. Elijah's quite a, a crazy dude at this point, um, doing amazing exploits for God. I want us just to take a moment, chat to the person around you, the people next to you. If you were to describe Elijah, if someone came up to you and said, what, what's Elijah like? Describe his character to me. Um, how would you describe him? Take, take a minute just to kind of chat to the person next to you. How would you describe Elijah if you had to introduce him at a party or something? Okay, <clears throat> I think that's about enough time. So what have we got? Who, who wants to kind of share with me the, the sort of words that you've got to describe Elijah? Any takers? Andrew? A no-nonsense type of guy. No-nonsense type of guy, I like it. Yeah, very true, very true. Anyone else? Anything else? Anthony? Dramatic gestures. 
Dramatic gestures, yes, very dramatic gestures. Any others, any other words? Yep. He's a bit out there, yeah. I love that, a bit out there. Here's some of the words that I, I came up with to describe Elijah. Bold. Audacious, I love that word, just like audacious. Brave. Slightly cheeky. You know, I feel the whole ordeal on Mount Carmel, it was the way he set it up and it was, you know, slightly cheeky and then he's, he's mocking the other prophets and saying, oh, your God, he must be busy, you know, he's got that kind of cheeky streak to him, fiery. You know, he's all about the fire, the demonstrating the righteousness of God in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense. There's a great Hebrew word called huspah, which I love, which I think it basically uh, combines all of those words that we've just had. It's like cheeky, audacious, insolent, brave, bold. I think that really describes Elijah uh, really well. Great. So we're going to read our passage for this morning. Um, chapter 19. John T, if you'd like to come and read for me this morning. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. It doesn't really sound like Elijah, does it? It doesn't really match up with some of the words that we had to describe him. Um, all of that happens. Mount Carmel happens. And then Jezebel comes along and says to Elijah, I'm going to kill you. Um, may the gods kill me, eff effectively, if I don't, by this time tomorrow, make you like those prophets. And, uh, and it says, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. So there's quite a, a shift here, quite a change here. Um, how did this happen? He'd, he'd just done amazing miracles. He'd almost proven beyond doubt that God is real, that, that Baal is not real, that he's a powerful God who can send fire from heaven at any point. And suddenly, he's in this state of, of vulnerability. He's in a state of fear. He's afraid. It seems strange. He's had incredible success. And I think one of the most obvious things I, I draw from this is that even when we do have great success in God, we're still not immune to discouragement. We're not immune to the lies of the enemy and the attacks of the enemy. And so this brings us to the first point I want to talk about this morning, and that's fear and fiery darts. So we are in a battle. Um, God has commissioned us. To, to go into the world. Jamie talked a number of weeks ago about um, are, are we troublers in, in the world? Um, King Ahab calls Elijah the, the troubler of Israel. And, and Jamie posed that question to us, are we troublers? And the reality is God has called us to go into the different uh, spheres where we are, our schools, our work, um, even our, our family sometimes, our homes, our streets, and to represent him. 
But some of these spaces, they're, they're not neutral. And when we're doing that, when we're being salt and light in these spaces, the enemy isn't happy about it. And it talks in the New Testament, Paul in, in Ephesians talks about these things called flaming darts or, or fiery darts. And he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The reality of the battle is sometimes the enemy will try to discourage us. And we're reading an Old Testament story this morning, but Elijah is, is really facing the same battle that every follower of God has, has ever faced throughout history and, and that we face today. The enemy hasn't changed. He, he, it says in the, the, uh, in the Bible that he's, he was a liar from the beginning. That's always what he's been doing. He's the accuser of the brethren, a roaring lion looking for those he can devour. And in this story, it's like he, he uses the words of Jezebel, that threat, and there's this fiery dart attached to it that suddenly Elijah's hit, and it's like all the kind of success, all of the confidence he had is gone, and he ends up running away. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Maybe you've been going about your life, going about your day, and then almost out of nowhere, it's like this thought comes, this discouragement comes. Maybe it's something someone said. It was an innocent remark. And suddenly, it's like everything's crumbling. It's like you see this chain of events playing out in front of you. And it's like, oh, but this is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's all going to fall apart. It's going to be terrible. And it's like all your, all your confidence goes. I can think of a few times in my life where, where that's happened. Weirdly, sometimes it, it, it happens to me when, when I'm on holiday, when I'm meant to be peaceful. And it's like that's when the enemy just starts to kind of lie and accuse me. I can think of one time quite recently where I'd, we'd gone away for a week and then suddenly I was like, oh my goodness, these anxious thoughts were just coming. I'm like, where's this come from? And the thing about a fiery dart is that there's the initial impact. But if it's not dealt with, it's got that, that fieriness to it. It can take hold. It can spread. It can start to affect our life in, in different ways. The good news, we, we can see the effects of, of the fiery dart in this passage in, in Elijah's, li Elijah's life. Rather. Uh, the good news is God has equipped us to deal with these lies of the enemy, to deal with these attacks. And, and again, it's from this passage. It says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts. So we can extinguish those lies. We can extinguish those accusations. They don't have to affect us. They don't have to destroy our life. They don't have to send us into turmoil. And I wanted to explore a little bit as we start, what does it mean to take up the shield of faith? If that is our, our protection against these lies, against the, the fear that, that can sometimes come, how do we do that? How do we take up the shield of faith? Just some examples there of Fiery darts, things that, that can, potentially, um, can potentially come from the enemy. Did God really say, questioning his word in our life, God can't really be trusted. There is no way back from this. You're getting what you deserve. So how do we take up the shield of faith? Um, the first thing I want to speak about is we recognize when we are clinging to our strength and strategy instead of him. So sometimes that, that phrase, take up the shield of faith, is a very active thing, take up the shield of faith. And sometimes we can't take up the shield because we're already holding on to something else. 
because there's something in our lives, a strategy, our own strength, our own sense of importance, our own sense of spirituality, that actually we need to lay down first before we can take up the shield of faith. And in my experience, um, I can sometimes be saying I'm trusting God, or I can sometimes be saying, God, I want to serve you with my life. But secretly, behind what I'm saying, there's a little sneaky strategy that I've got of how I want God to do things, of how I want God to act, of how I want God to come through for me. Um, Hugh challenged us last, last week in his sermon. He, he said, he talked about faith being spelled T-R-U-S-T, that, that sense of trust. He actually described faith as a developing trust in the Lord. And I love that. I love that sense of, of faith being about putting your trust in him over my ability to control things, over my strategies. I just want to give, give an example of this. This is Jane, um, and this is from 2011. She's in Kenya at the time, and um, I was running through this story this morning with Jane. I kept getting the details wrong, so I'm probably going to say a bunch of stuff that isn't true, but chat to her afterwards. It's a great, a great story if you want to just really hear what happened. Um, but in about 2011... Um, she was really kind of passionate to, to serve God. And she, she said, right, I'm going to go to Kenya. I'm going to go on a missions trip with Tear Fund. Um, it was a seven-week long trip. Um, she was going to be building um, uh, water tanks. Yeah, <laughs> building water tanks. Uh, she was going to be teaching in a school. Um, and she was like, yeah, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be a dynamic team trip. I'm going to meet lots of people. It's going to be a really exciting time. And she got there, and the reality was very much not like that. Um, so it wasn't a big team. It was a small team of three of them, not really enough people to do the work that they had to do. It was very hard work. It was manual labor every day. The person that was meant to be cooking for them uh, was, wasn't there, wasn't around. So Jane found herself having to cook um, with sort of very limited equipment, and nobody else in her group could cook. So it all fell on her. And by the end of those seven weeks, she was exhausted she was tired, she was discouraged, very hungry, hadn't eaten a lot. But there's another twist to the story, because as well as going on this missions trip and serving God, she had this idea, I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, um, and I'm going to raise money and, and use that to kind of raise money. Again, very noble thing to, to want to do. She hadn't trained for this, key detail. Um, and also bearing in mind, this is the end of seven weeks of manual labor. <laughs> and not eating a huge amount, and, and she hadn't trained. She also had to get to Mount Kilimanjaro by driving in a coach through the Serengeti, which was meant to be maybe a, a day's trip, um, but it was in a flood season, so that there was flooding at the time, and there was all of these massive bodies of water in the Serengeti which the co coach couldn't cross. So she ended up waiting. They had to stop the engine in the middle of the night in the Serengeti with wild animals around. And the driver was like, yeah, this should be safe. Um, and she was absolutely terrified. They had to drive through kind of meter-high sort of bodies of water. And all the luggage in the bottom of the coach got completely drenched. And that, that was all of her stuff. Finally, she gets to Mount Kilimanjaro. She's doing this on her own, by the way. I mean, I, I just cannot understand <laughs> her thinking. Um, gets to Mount Kilimanjaro and starts this five-day grueling climb. Very soon into it, things aren't going well. She starts throwing up and feeling very, very sick, and she's got altitude sickness. And it's just her and these four Sherpas 
that are kind of climbing and making cup of soup for her every night. And um, she gets a couple of days into this. She's, she's thinking, this is really embarrassing. I've got these people sponsoring me. I'm meant to be raising money. But I'm going to have to turn back. I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm just throwing up every day. I, this, this isn't working. She's like, you know, if I get any further, then the only way they can rescue me from the mountain is sending a helicopter from, from uh, Kenya. And, uh, and it's this wobbly stretcher. I don't, I don't want that to happen. I'm going to have to turn back. So she tells them we're going to turn back, and she gets to the bottom. This isn't the end of the story. So she then has to get back to Kenya. But on the way back, a cash machine swallows her card, so she has no card. In changing coaches, she'd managed to leave her phone on the other coach. So she's without a bank card and without a phone. No way of contacting the person in Kenya she's meant to meet to collect her bag that she's meant to use, because their other bag is dodgy and all the rest of it. Anyway, very stressful, very humiliating. Everything she thought this trip was going to be did not pan out. And by the end of it, she was just pretty traumatized and actually discouraged and, and kind of angry at God. It, it was kind of this, this sort of feeling of, God, I was meant to be serving you. This was meant to be me giving up my time and my resources and, and serving you in this, this big, dramatic way. And it, it, it hasn't happened. What's happened, God? You haven't come through how I, how I expected. And actually, for a number of years, this was kind of, this discouragement was just there uh, that she carried it. It was kind of eating away at her. It wasn't until a num number of years later where God began to heal those memories and actually uh, show her that he was with her in that situation. Incidentally, this is not Mount Kilimanjaro in the picture. This is just a small elevation is what, how Jane described it. Um, but Jane realized years later when God was speaking to her about this experience that actually she'd gone to serve God. That, that was the stated purpose. But really behind that, she had a sneaky plan that this was going to be really fun. This was going to be exciting. She was going to meet lots of people. Um, it was going to be enjoyable and that she'd have a lovely seven weeks. That didn't happen. And the fact that it didn't happen left her open to that, that sense of discouragement. And I'm not going to have a chance to share lots of stories, but there's loads of examples, I think, in, in our lives of times when, when maybe we've been claiming to serve God, but, but there's a sneaky plan, there's an idea behind it. Um, I remember Jamie shared a story a number of, of um weeks ago about when, when Fikret made the stand of righteousness, you know, things weren't good in his work situation, so he decided to, to leave his job and, um, and kind of expected that God, God would provide. But for a number of, of months, that provision didn't come. And, and sometimes when, when there's an expectation of God doing things in a certain way, it can, there can be that vulnerability to discouragement and an attack. Sometimes we don't realize that our hope is actually conditional on God meeting certain criteria until that fiery dart comes, and we start thinking, has God abandoned me? Is, is he really there? Is he really real? Um, in this story, rewinding to 1 Kings 18, Elijah, when he's on the mountain in this big showdown, he prays this dramatic prayer. He says, oh Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And God answers him and the fire falls. And then a few verses later, it seems like nothing's happened. And I just wonder whether Elijah had this sense of, God, this is how things are going to happen. We're going to have this showdown. The fire's going to fall. You're going to answer. 
The whole of Israel is going to turn back to God. Jezebel is going to be convicted. Ahab's going to be convicted. All the people are going to start following you again. And it doesn't happen. And he's discouraged. And he's afraid. And he runs away. So that, that first point, laying down perhaps our own strategies, our own strength. The second thing that taking up the shield of faith can look like is we choose to agree with what he says, not what the accuser says. The thing about a shield is you can't hold a shield. You can't take up a shield unless it has a handle. The handle isn't the shield. The handle is just attached to the shield, but it's essential for using the shield for its intended purpose. If I'm trying to hold the shield, you know, I can't fight, I can't be in battle, so you need the handle. And I think it's a bit like that with faith sometimes. Faith can seem a bit abstract, a bit airy-fairy. How do I summon faith? How do I get more faith in this situation? But I think often there's something that we need to hold that the faith is attached to. Um, It says in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith often comes from hearing God. Often the thing that we hold that faith is attached to in a situation is a word from God. Um, And there are so many times in my life where I'm facing discouragement, and and it's almost like the accusation is coming, the lies are coming, and I have a choice in that moment. Do I agree with the lie? Do I agree with the anxiety or the thought or the fiery dart that's coming? Or do I agree with what God has said? Do I agree with the words he's spoken over my life? Do I agree with what's written in his word about who he says that I am and who he says that, that he is? And we often have a choice of what do we agree with in that situation. Um, There's a particular story. So some of you will know that um, between me and my brothers, uh, growing up, we we struggled a lot with mental health in in different ways and suffered with anxiety in different ways. And uh, there was a particular uh, time when God had led us on a journey of freedom from anxiety, all three of us. And we kind of thought there's something that God has done in us that we we need to share. There's a testimony that needs to be shared here. And we come to a point of actually being ready to to give testimony on a Sunday morning. We called it the Simmons Sunday. And all three of us were going to be sharing our story and sharing different things that God had done in in freeing us from anxiety. And Toby was down from uh, university at the time. And um, he was going to be sharing with us. Toby's my middle brother. Pete was, Pete's my other brother who led worship this morning. Um, and so it was going to be the Simmons Sunday. We, we were going to, um, going to share our testimony. And we woke up on the morning that we were going to do that. And Toby was just hit with this sense of anxiety, this sense of dread, um, this sense of, of almost depression just, just came over him. And, and this was part of what God had been leading him through and, and setting him free from. But it was like in that moment, it just all came to a head and, and we came to a point that we were like, can we even do this? We're set up to speak on Sunday. We're set up to share this story of what God has done. Are we going to have to cancel it? Can we do this? Because that's not the reality that Toby's experiencing right now. That, you know, it would seem fake. It, it wouldn't seem real. And I remembered a dream that I'd had a couple of nights before. It was a very strange dream. But it just came to me in that moment on the Sunday morning. And in this dream, um, me and Toby were walking through a field... And it's this big open expanse. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this creature comes walking towards us. It's this big, black creature, cat-like creature. 
And, uh, and it was pretty scary. We just felt this sense of tension, me and Toby, as this creature comes towards us. And, um, and this sense of fear and this sense of dread. And then Peter enters the scene um, and says, oh, that, that's just the panther. That's nothing. And as soon as he said it, the, the panther, the, the creature in the story, just completely disappeared. And it's almost like it turned into a 1,000 bees, and they all just flew away, and the thing just went. And that sense of dread, that sense of fear just lifted from the situation. And as we were there that Sunday morning, grappling with, are we going to do this? Are we going to go through and, and, and speak? That, that dream just came to me, and I realized it was God's word to us in that situation. That he was basically saying that this fear, you don't have to agree with it. That actually this is an attempt to intimidate, it's an attempt to lie of the enemy. And actually... Our position in that moment, what he was calling us to do in that moment, was to speak to it and declare it to go and, and almost laugh it off. Just say, no, this is nothing. And that's what we did. We took a time of prayer and we declared uh, God's truth in that situation. And that fear lifted. And, and we did go ahead and we spoke. And I can see looking back that that was just like a last ditch attempt of the enemy to try and come in and discourage and prevent that testimony from being said. Um, but we had a choice in that situation. We could agree with this fear. We can agree with this sense of dread and say, oh, it's terrible. Toby's feeling this. Let, let me call ahead and, and cancel. But we chose to agree instead with, uh, with what God said. And what I like about this is that often when you're in that situation of needing faith, it's not about summoning something up from within. It's not about saying, God, show me something new. Show me something fresh. Often it's just about standing in what he's already done. It's about standing in what he's already spoken. And I wonder whether some of us are in, in situations right now where things feel pretty scary. And God's just saying, what have I already spoken? What faith, what small seed of faith have I already planted in you um, that is relevant for this situation? There is an authority that comes when we agree with what God has spoken over our lives. Again, Hugh spoke to us last week from Zechariah 4 about speaking to the mountain, taking authority sometimes in situations that we're facing, and declaring God's truth, declaring God's, God's word over situations. I feel like that, that might be something God has for us at the moment. But it doesn't seem to be what Elijah has done. We have this verse, then Jezebel sent a messenger, then he was afraid. It's almost like she makes this threat, he's hit by the fiery dart, he chooses to agree with that, and he runs away. It doesn't have to be like that for us. God has equipped us, he's given us a, a strategy, he's given us a shield to hold. And uh, I've got a couple of questions just to ponder off the back of this. Number one, is there a strategy I'm trusting instead of God in my life? Um, kind of like we were describing earlier, is there something I'm clinging on to that I need to lay down? And secondly, where can I declare God's truth over the enemy's accusations? And for this one, it may not just be in your own life. There may be people you're walking with, people in your family, where it's about declaring God's truth over them as well. But just a couple of questions there for us to ponder. Cool. John T., thank you. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. 
Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. <clears throat> so things get, get worse um, in this situation for, for Elijah. He runs away. He's in a very dark place at this point. The point I want to I talk about off the back of this passage is we don't get to decide when we're done. So we heard he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. We can see Elijah in his darkest moment, really, at this point, laying out his emotions before God, um, asking, asking to die, which, which is kind of strange, because as I was reading this, I was thinking, well, wasn't he afraid of dying before? When, when Jezebel made that death threat, wasn't that the thing that made him afraid? And then he runs away, and now he's asking to die. That, that doesn't really, really make sense. But for me... It suggests that something might have happened between those two passages, between those two verses. And I, I wonder whether Elijah has moved from fear in that first moment to shame. There's that phrase, I'm no better than my father's. Take my life now. It, it is enough, Lord. It's almost like Elijah's realizing that, hold on, I've, I've run away from my purpose. I've run away from my calling. I was afraid and now I'm no better than my father's. I'm the one that, that God's meant to use to bring this nation back on track. I'm, I'm the troubler of Israel. I'm, I'm the one who's anointed to, to, uh, to pray and, and see the fire of God come, come down. And now I've run away? It feels like there's, there's this sense of, of shame hanging over Elijah in this moment. And, and as I read this passage, this was what really kind of struck me and stood out to me. Elijah's come to a place of no hope. He's come to the end of himself. He feels like he's thrown away his purpose, thrown away his, his calling. He's pouring out his, his deepest, darkest thoughts before God. And what's God's response? Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. I love this verse. And I just think, praise God, that we don't get to decide when we are done in our life. That fear and shame and stupid decisions don't get to seal our fate. God knows when he's finished with us. I just love the tenderness of God in this moment. Arise and eat. Come on. There's a journey for you to walk, Elijah. You need some strength for the journey. He's saying, I'm not done with you yet. I have more for you. And as it happens, this, this dark moment in the life of Elijah is actually a turning point. This isn't the end. 
for him. That prayer when he says, God, God, please kill me now effectively. God doesn't answer that prayer. In fact, God never answers that prayer. If you jump ahead to the story, Elijah doesn't actually die. He's taken up to heaven. But God says, the best is yet to come for you. I have more for you. Elijah sees a full stop in his life, and God turns it into a comma. God is in the business of of turning our full stops into commas, of lifting our heads, of giving us hope, of saying, come on, there's a journey for you to walk, take some strength. And I wonder whether there are people here this morning who, who perhaps like Elijah, you're, you're thinking, it is enough. Maybe you're feeling like your best days are behind you. Maybe you're feeling like, I've done my bit. Um, I'm not able to do what I could do before. I, I used to serve God in, in lots of different ways. It's time for other people to take the reins now. It's, 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 their, it's their turn. It, it is enough. It's enough. And you've kind of you've put that full stop there. Maybe there's some kind of illness or physical restriction or, or something that you, you feel is stopping you in, in different ways. And there's that sense of, of it's enough. Maybe your life circumstances have changed. Maybe you're in a new job, or, or you've lost your job, or, or you've got a new circumstance for some reason, and it's, it's almost like, God, I don't really know what serving you looks like in, in this new season. I used to serve you in, in all of these ways, and I can't do that anymore. I don't really know what to do. And you're just feeling it's enough. Maybe you used to be on fire for God, and you used to have a passion to follow him. And it's kind of like things are just simmered down and you're sort of feeling flat, and you're just thinking, well, maybe life is just about you know, paying the bills and sort of saving up for holidays and just getting by, and you're thinking, it's enough. Maybe there's relational change in your life. Maybe you feel like you've lost friends. People that were close now seem distant. People that you always felt would be constant in your life are no longer there. And it's, it's causing confusion. It's causing uh, discouragement. Maybe you tried to step out and you were disappointed. Maybe you prayed to God for something and it didn't happen. Just like Elijah, and, and you're not sure how to move on. And you're thinking, it's enough. I'm, I'm not going to bother again. There's no point. I'm not going to pour myself out in that way again. Maybe you're feeling disqualified by sin. You're thinking, how can God ever use me again? It's enough. And I just thank God that he comes to us in these moments, in that spirit of gentleness. He gives us food for the journey. And it's almost like he's saying, you know, when Elijah's like, I've come to the end of myself, I can't go on. And God's like, finally, finally, now you can rely on me. Now you can step into my grace. Now you can step into all that I have for you. Elijah thinks he's done. But God says, there's something on the horizon. There's something coming and there's a sense of expectation. Jamie was sharing this morning about um, th- this visit of um, Jack Little, who- who's coming with the team, and, and the sense of expectation of God moving in-, in the power of the Spirit and what he wants to do, us- do amongst us as a community. And I think if we choose to, we can look to God and we can say, God, stir in me that sense of expectation. It doesn't matter what's gone before, but there's something ahead. There's a journey ahead, the best is yet to come for us as a community, for us as individuals. And so as we come 
to the questions about this passage, I just wanted us to consider, have I declared it is enough over any area of my life? And will I step into the journey beyond the comma? If God is saying to me, if God is saying to us, this isn't a full stop, this is a comma, I have more for you, it takes an active step to say, yes, I'm going to move beyond that. I'm going to choose to believe what you say, God. Great. John T. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in, in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So God speaks to Elijah. He asks him that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, and he moves him on. He moves him to this, this cave. Um, and he starts dealing with him. He starts uh, speaking to him and leading him on a bit of a journey of discovery. And uh, I just want to dwell on this next point, which is the voice of gentle silence. So it's kind of fascinating that, that when Elijah's in this cave, the Lord passes by in three very dramatic ways, three very dramatic events. You've got the wind, you've got the earthquake, and you've got the fire. And part of me thinks... Surely Elijah's on quite familiar territory with, with these sorts of things. Isn't he a kind of fiery prophet who calls down fire from heaven and, you know, standing for justice and righteousness? But I feel like God is teaching him something. He's teaching him about the quiet strength of his voice. And um, as I've pondered these three uh, events, these three manifestations, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire... And I was having a chat with uh, my brother Peter earlier this week about it. And we felt there are maybe things that, that these represent for us. And the first one of these, which, which I wanted to talk about, was valid expressions of God's presence, but not for this time. So when you think about the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, these are actually all very biblical ways that God reveals himself. You can find times... All throughout scripture, God revealing himself in the wind. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as, as wind when the Spirit of God is talked about. That word is interchangeable with wind. He's there hovering over the water at the beginning in Genesis. He comes in Pentecost as a mighty wind. And then you've got the earthquake. And uh, not that long ago in Kings, God reveals himself in an earthquake. He, he shakes the earth when, when Jeroboam um, give, uh, is given a prophecy and, and the altar is split and the earth is split. Um, 
on Mount Sinai when Moses is given the Ten Commandments. It says the, the earth is split uh, with an earthquake. So God reveals himself through an earthquake. And also God reveals himself through fire. So again, not that long ago, um, Elijah himself called down fire from heaven. Um, God reveals himself in, in Exodus as a pillar of fire guiding the people of Israel. So these are all very familiar, very valid ways that God reveals himself. But he's not in them. In this particular passage, God is not in the wind, he's not in the earthquake, and he's not in the fire. And sometimes I feel like in our lives we can look for God to reveal himself in old ways, in old, old expressions, which may be valid, but it's not what he has for us now. Um, in our household, Owen was sharing his uh, testimony this week, and he, he shared a story which I thought was quite, quite relevant for this. He, he described how as a teenager he'd met with God in very dramatic ways. Um, in the youth, he would uh, meet with the Holy Spirit, and he'd be laughing and you know, crying, and there'd, there'd be all these very, very outward kind of uh, ways that he'd meet with God and, and meet with the Holy Spirit. And later on in his life, he was kind of getting a bit frustrated and sort of asking God, like, God, why did that happen then? And it is not happening now. I, I don't seem to be meeting with you in that same way now. And, um, and God just very gently showed him all the ways that he was active in his life. He showed him how he provided a university place uh, at exactly the right place for what Owen needed, how the one of the first people Owen met in university turned out to be one of the most significant friendships that God had for him throughout that season of his life. How God had provided so many things along that journey, and God said to him, no, I have been meeting with you. I have been active in, active in your life, but it's what you need for now. That was what you needed then, when you were a teenager, and this is what, what you need now. Those were valid expressions, but God was doing a new thing. And I think so often throughout Scripture, we see God doing a new thing and people missing it. You know, even when you look at Jesus, when he arrives on, on the scene, the Pharisees are expecting this big warrior to come and rescue them from the Romans. And instead, you get a humble guy who's not much to look at, carpenter's son, and yet he is the one who God has sent to restore the kingdom. See, I am doing a new thing. So let's, let's not be distracted by old expressions when God maybe has a new thing for us in our life. The second point was these three things can be distractions from the quiet strength of his voice. And again, sometimes I think, you know, we can be in the midst of circumstances which can be quite dramatic, even quite scary. And I'm sure Elijah in the middle of these, these different events it would have been pretty scary. You know, earthquake, fire all around, hurricane-like wind. And sometimes the enemy can use the circumstances around us to try and intimidate us and almost uh, say, look how powerful I am in, in these circumstances. But in the middle of this, God's voice is present, and it's quiet, and it's gentle. And there's something about just tuning in to access that quiet voice of God. It may be disorientating. The things we're going through may be confusing. It may feel like our, our world is crumbling around us. And there can be a temptation to be impressed by that. But I believe God is, is saying to us that there's a peace that can be accessed even in the midst of those if we, if we stop and listen. And there's lots of 
ways that that, that that phrase, that gentle voice, that still small voice that we read about in this passage, pretty much every Bible, every translation translates it differently. It's a very hard phrase to translate, and lots of people disagree. But here's just a few of the ways people translate it. A low whisper, a gentle silence, a still small voice, the sound of a gentle whisper. Um, is actually the same word that's used in Psalm 107, where it says, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. That word hushed is the same word that's often translated as whisper in this passage with Elijah. So you can see that it's gentle, it's quiet, it's still, but it's not weak. It's the voice that calms the raging seas. When Jesus stood on that boat and the wind and the waves were crashing around, it's the middle of a storm and he said, peace, be still. That's the voice that is speaking to Elijah. And I can think of times in my life when I feel like I've been surrounded by turmoil, but there's been a a voice, a clear, small voice that is the voice of God speaking to me. I remember when I was doing my A-levels and I was just at that last moment of like revising for my exams and I had this offer from university that I was excited about and it, it was quite a hard offer to meet and I knew that I had to put, put work in. And in the space of 24 hours, so I managed to leave my bag in school. And it had all of my paper notes that I've been writing for my revision in it. And when I went back to school later that day, um, someone had picked it up. And they'd basically thrown the contents all down the stairwell. And I, I was walking up the stairs. I left it in the art block, which is right at the top of, top of the building. And I just basically said, oh, there's some of my revision notes. There's some of my revision notes. And it, it was just kind of completely, completely gone. Um, so that was my, my paper notes. But then I also had, I'd been doing, uh, making notes digitally as well. And then that very night, would you believe it, the computer that I was working on crashed. And I couldn't switch it on anymore. And so I started to panic at this point. And um, I think we, we even got Steve, Steve Adams over to try and fix it. It was a Mac computer. Um, and I, you know, we, we couldn't work out how to fix it. And, and he came over and he, he sort of said, no, it's completely gone. This is one of those things that can happen when the hard drive just completely dies and it's, it's just irretrievable. He said it a bit more gently than that. That sounds a bit... <laughs> um, but in that moment, I, it just felt like my world was crumbling. I had this plan. I had this idea of what I needed to do. And I was getting my notes together. And it's like it just the rug got pulled from under me. And the whole thing just crumbled. I remember being angry at God. I remember just being like, God, what is the point of me getting this offer from uni if you're just dangling it in front of me and there's no way of, of making it happen? And I just remember you know, there was like, yeah, tears in that moment. It, it was difficult. It was painful. But after I'd done with kind of sharing how I felt with God, it's like this tiny, tiny voice came in that stillness, in that, that silence. But I am with you. And you know what? It was kind of annoying. <laughs> because there's something quite almost comforting about feeling like there's nothing I can do. I, I just give up. It's almost like I'm protesting. God, I'm done. You know, I, I'm just going to give up everything and, and all of the dreams and, and it's done. And it's almost like you, know, you feel kind of self-righteous in that moment. But... In hearing that voice, I'm with you, I knew that I had to carry on. But not in my own strength, not through what I could do, not through all of the planning and the notes that I could make, but in trusting that, okay, God, if that's a place that you want me to be, 
then you can make a way for me to be there. It's not about what I can do. And I love how this still small voice of God is gentle, it's tender, it's exactly what we need for the moment. But it's also strong, it's also powerful, and it's challenging, and it slightly, can be slightly annoying at times. And, and sometimes it's there in, in the words that other people speak to us, the way they encourage us. Sometimes it's there when, when everything is quiet and we just hear that, that gentle whisper in our spirit. Sometimes it's there when we open his word and something just stands out to us and you, you feel that's, that's for me. But God is challenging Elijah in this moment. Why are you here, Elijah? What are you doing? I've got something for you. So a couple of reflections then on this passage. Lord, help me tune into your gentle silence in the midst of my circumstances. I don't know what we're going through this morning, but whatever you're facing, we can pray this prayer. God, help me tune into your gentle silence in the middle of it. And do I need to respond to a gentle whisper in my life? Have I heard something? Has God been nudging me about something? And actually, I need to respond. I need to step out now. I need to say yes, however difficult that may, may be. I'm going to move on to our final passage now before we wrap things up. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall put Jehu to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Is this one? Go and make a disciple. So I feel like God has been dealing with Elijah. Elijah's been saying, oh, but I'm the only one left. I had this job. It, you know, it's my job to turn Israel around, and nobody's following God, and, and I'm the only one. And God's been challenging him. He's been challenging his assumptions. He's been gently correcting him. He's showing him that he's not just the God of the big and the bold and the brash, the wind and the earthquake, but he's the God of the gentle whisper, the quiet, the unseen. And then we come to this final passage. If you remember at the start, we just witnessed this, this big demonstration of the power of God at Mount Carmel. But what happens? Is, is this the turning point for the nation that Elijah expected? No, it's not. We've seen that already. This isn't the thing that turns Israel around. When Israel is in the grip of Jezebel, when they're running after other gods, it's not this big dramatic miracle that turns things around. 
God doesn't often change the world with, with fireworks. When God wants to intervene to restore a nation, he uses people. He uses discipleship. And he says to Elijah, go back to Damascus, anoint Hazael to be king, anoint Jehu to be king, and anoint Elisha to pick up from where you've left off. Oh, and by the way, I've left 7,000 other people who've not bowed the knee. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. And it's easy to read this passage about Elijah in in the wilderness and, and everything going, and make it all about Elijah. Make it all about Elijah's own journey, his individual journey, and he gets discouraged and he gives into fear and he, he runs into the cave and God restores him and he restores his calling and he sends him out and Elijah uh, picks up where he left off and, and he goes out. But actually, I think the key point about this passage, about this chapter, is, is that it's not about Elijah. It's bigger than Elijah. God's almost saying, Elijah, you're not the only one. This is bigger than you. I've got a plan for after you've gone. You, you, you've still got a part to play. That's still important. But I'm calling you to relationship. I'm calling you to community. For the next chapter of your life, you're not going to be a lone ranger, this big, mighty prophet who just goes around laughing at the other prophets. I'm going to have you walking with others. I'm going to have you passing on your mantle. And by the way, there's, there's 7,000 others who haven't bowed the knee. We live in a very individualized society um, where it's all about me, it's all about fulfilling my dreams, how do I want to live, being true to my own authentic self. And, and sometimes we can spiritualize that and make it all about I need to fulfill my own calling. God has a plan and a purpose for my life that I need to fulfill. And, and if I you know, follow him rightly, then I'll, I'll have this amazing calling. And sometimes we can feel a bit like Elijah. We can... We can feel like, you know, in, in the different spheres of, of our lives, I'm the only one. In my school, in my workplace, everyone around me is, is, is being unrighteous and everyone around me is maybe gossiping or, or doing things that, that they shouldn't be. And I'm the only one in this place. But God's saying, look around, look around you. I've placed you in community. I've placed you among other people that are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, who are working out what it means to follow God. Together we have the mind of Christ and we can draw strength and then we can go out and represent him in all of the spheres that he has us as as teachers, in our homes, in our workplaces, in healthcare, in in different settings where he's placed us. And actually Elijah and and Elisha is is quite widely recognized as one of the first uh, examples of of discipleship of that uh, rabbi and, and student relationship in the Bible. It's kind of an, an archetype, really, of, of discipleship in the Bible. And it's almost like God is saying, this is how I want to do things. This is how I want to change the world. In 2015, there was a BBC News article with this uh, heading. It said, ex-child soldier fought Sierra Leone's war against Ebola. Some of you will uh, remember the Ebola um, epidemic in, in 2014 in, in Sierra Leone. And um, this article really talks about how Prince Tommy, obviously he's a friend of ours, helped lead the response in, in the nation by providing relief for families, by setting up a clinic, by taking in orphan children to the Nehemiah home. Um, but Prince has his own story. At the age of 15, 
He was captured by rebels in the Civil War. And I just want to read a bit from this article that, that illustrates some of, some of his story. So Prince is speaking. He says, I had a normal family life before the war started in 1991. But at 15, I was kidnapped by the rebels and taken to the jungle where I was trained on how to use a gun and initiated into the group. I thought it was the end of my life. It was like living in a different world, not like living on Earth. The rebels also threatened to cut off my legs or arms if I tried to flee. And I saw this happen to other people. Sometimes we were forced to kill, which we did under the influence of drugs. Luckily, I did manage to escape from the jungle without being killed. And I went to the capital, Freetown, but was unable to find my relatives. I lived alone, but teamed up with some guys doing things like pickpocketing, and I was caught. Fortunately, while in jail, I met a preacher called Richard Cole, who was the founder of a project called Lifeline Nehemiah, which aimed to give hope and a home to people like me who felt they had lost hope. He encouraged me, saying, you used to cause atrocities, but you can be used to contribute to rebuild the nation. Richard taught me that it was God who was taking me through all these troubling times. He passed away in 2006, but we had the vision and continue with it. Prince was positioned to lead in the Ebola crisis because someone else had had vision for him when everybody else might have written him off because someone else had heard the leading of God, the calling of God. Go and take this person on, under your wing. I've got a plan for them. I've got a purpose for them to use them in the rebuilding of the nation because Richard had responded to the leading of God and shown, demonstrated the love of God in, in that very real, practical way, Prince was able to then take on the vision that Richard had, had birthed. And this is the stuff that, that changes nations. It's the quiet. It's the unseen. And as a church, we're, we're grappling with this question of um, how do we encourage a, a new generation of leaders? Um, again, Hugh talked about, you know, building a worthy capstone on the foundation that's laid. But this is the kingdom pattern of, of how God transforms lives, how God transforms communities and even nations. It's passed on through overlapping lives. It's not through big showy miracles. It's not through sermons. But it's through examples that are set, iron sharpening iron. I remember when I um, first came back from uni, Jamie invited me to be a youth leader. And I remember thinking... How can I relate to these young people? I've just I've come back from uni. I feel like I've been living in a completely different world. They're not going to want to spend time with me. And I remember uh, Jamie invited some of the leaders to come and, and prophesy over the youth leaders at that time. And Sally had this picture for me. She said, I can see you surrounded by young guys. And they're really enjoying being with you. They're, they're really wanting to be there. And it just completely challenged my thinking. It was like, well, maybe God can use me in this situation even though I don't feel like it. And so then I had to think, well, well how do I do this? How do I you know, re reach out to the young people? And I thought about how Jamie had, had shown that to me, had, had reached out to me, and we played FIFA, and we'd done Laser Quest as a young, young teenager. And I had to find my own expression of, of what it meant, meant to, to reach out to the young people. And then I thought, well, how did Jamie know how to do that? He knew how to do that because he'd seen John model hospitality and model love and care by inviting people into his home. 
And I kind of think that, that picture of how is, how is transformation happening? How is a movement being continued? It's through discipleship. It's through observation. It's through watching. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I reflected on this and I thought, you can only imitate someone when you've been in close proximity. You can't imitate a podcast or a sermon. You know, you can listen to it. It can be inspiring, but it, it can't lead to imitation. You can only imitate someone if you've watched how they live, if you've walked with them, if you've seen how they've reacted to things, how they act in certain situations. So these are the points that I want to, the questions I want to ask. How can I move from a lone ranger mindset to pressing into community? And what does embracing discipleship look like for me? We might be at different stages in this individually. For some of us, it might be that I actually need to step out and, and take someone under my wing. Maybe God is, is nudging me about someone that he wants me to, to show love to. Maybe it's about you going to someone and saying, hey, I want to learn from you. Can I watch how you live? Can I watch how you act? Um, but it's that question of what does embracing discipleship look like? As we wrap up today, um, I just wanted to finish by reflecting. There's, I feel like as I read this passage, it, it's great. It's describing Elijah. It's describing the work of God. But I feel like there's, there's something going on behind the scenes. There's someone behind uh, this story and, and the words that God is speaking. And I'm just reminded as I read the story of, of the person of Jesus and, and who he is in our life and how he deals with us. And in fact, when uh, God meets with Elijah in his darkest moment and, and gives him that food and gives him that strength, it says the angel of the Lord came. And many Bible scholars believe that when the angel of the Lord is referred to in the Old Testament, it's actually talking about Jesus. That's the person of Jesus there in the Old Testament. And I believe that, that that character of Jesus, that heart of Jesus, that spirit of gentleness, that spirit of restoration, finds its most perfect expression in the person of Jesus when he came into this world and he, he represented that for us. In the Gospel of Matthew, um, he refers back to, to a prophecy in Isaiah that described the coming Messiah and he's described like this. It says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. When we talk about that still, small voice, when we talk about that voice of correction, when we talk about that voice of love that Elijah experienced, it's the voice of Jesus that, that we're hearing it's the one who calmed the storm, the one who stood in that boat. He's the one who lifts us out of fear, who lifts us out of shame, who speaks with that gentle, correcting voice, and then who commissions us to go out. And it's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of everything that he has done for us in taking on our shame, taking on our fear, taking on our sin when he died for us on the cross. And there's another story in the Gospels which is, very much like the story we've looked at today. It's the story of, of Peter. Like Elijah, Peter is a very fiery character. Um, he has a very strong idea in his mind of, of what needs to happen. But he denies Jesus. When Jesus is arrested, Elijah, um, Elijah denies Jesus, 
and he runs away out of fear. And then, like Elijah, he's hit with shame. He realizes what he's done. And it says he goes away and he wept bitterly. But Jesus doesn't leave Elijah and uh, Peter in fear and shame. He comes to him. When he rose from the dead, Jesus comes to Peter and he restores him. He finds him fishing. And in that same spirit of gentleness, he asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? And Peter has that opportunity to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does Peter do? He says, go and feed my lambs. He commissions him to go out and make disciples, to go into the world in a new strength, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to turn the world upside down, not through power and strength, not through power and might, but through love. So as we conclude today, just four reflections for us as we think about how this might apply to our lives. And the first one is, where might we need to declare God's truth over fear in our lives? Secondly, where do we want to experience Jesus' power of restoration in our lives? Where might we have said it is enough and seen that full stop in our circumstances? And we want, we want to know God's restoration. We need him to lift us out of shame. Thirdly, where can we access his voice of gentle silence in our circumstances? Tune into that, that still small voice where he speaks over us. And finally, how can we embrace his commission to build community and pursue discipleship? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK. Thank you.